This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the What is Flow episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And also, while Emily Peck is still on vacation, we have Eric Newcomer here. Eric, welcome. Thanks for having me. If I may say so. A newcomer to the show. We have not had you here before, but we're very happy to have you. Introduce yourself. Who are you? I'm a former Bloomberg reporter. I was wrote about sort of the rise and fall of Uber and a lot of startups in venture capital. And then during the pandemic, I quit to start my own Substack called Newcomer. I also host a podcast called Deadcat. And uh, yeah, I'm the top startup and venture capital reporter on Substack right now. Well done. Substack has had its own little like mini brouhaha this week, which we won't talk about. But we will talk about Flow which is the new company from Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork. We're going to talk about the venture capital economy more broadly. We're going to manage to talk about Bed Bath & Beyond because we have to. And we were asked to by, um, who was it, who asked us on Twitter to talk about this? Mary Harriet Talbot. Mary, you're welcome. It's all coming up on Sleet Money. Okay, so I think... We have to talk about this $350 million investment that Anderson Horowitz made in Flow. And no one really knows what Flow is, but everyone knows what Anderson Horowitz is. They came from kind of nowhere to become one of the most important venture capitalists in the world. And this is their biggest investment ever, Eric. And so, and they got their co-founder, Mark Andreessen, to write this big, long blog post, which is frankly deranged, <laughs> explaining why. That's their style, deranged blog post for every investment. This is just the one the world seems to care about. But yeah. Yeah, the, the world cares about it because it's so big and because it's two people that we all know very well, which is Mark Andreessen and Adam Newman. Adam Newman famously as the guy who managed to build a $4 billion company out of nothing except for hard work, grit, and $20 billion of investment. Right. Which I feel like, you know, it's true. Not many of us have built $4 billion, $4 billion companies, but it's if you have like people, 20, people believe, giving you $20 billion, yeah, do it. Yeah, that I would need at least $21 billion. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why didn't you just take $15 billion of the... 20 billion and spend it all on tequila and then at least you could have had five billion dollars in the box somewhere or it, it was a real estate better. business you know you'd think if you just used it to buy real estate it would yeah hold real close was, to its value yeah, was going up at the time but that's so anyway he left that company a billionaire went off and started buying up a bunch of multifamily housing for because reasons and now he has decided that he is going to do to multifamily housing what WeWork did to offices, or at least that seems to be the Mark Andreessen take. And my first question for you, Eric, is assuming that he succeeds in doing that, would that be a good thing? The actual company? That's an interesting question. 
you know, this is capitalism. It's good to throw things against the wall. I think what's interesting was whether Adam Newman is the person to do it, but the actual company, the idea that, you know, we've moved to this world where far more workers are going remote. Uh, there doesn't seem to be enough housing supply for people. You know, Mark Andreessen lays out this picture of sort of boring rental units. I don't know if Mark Andreessen has lived in a rental unit in a long time, but... Ever, maybe? <laughs> you know, there certainly what's the harm in saying, okay, let's see if we can find, you know, apartments that people find more exciting and offer something. And I mean, that's sort of the market. So I have no problem really with the core idea. And clearly there's plenty of reason to to experiment. So I have a question. What is Andreessen Horowitz doing investing in residential real estate generally? <laughs> is, is early stage VC just mean whatever anybody thinks it means now? Like it doesn't really have to be scalable. You, it doesn't have to be a tech company. Right. Uh, what's going on there? <laughs> I have a theory for this one, right? Which is that Mark Andreessen has this theory that software is eating the world. Everything is software. You can define software broadly. You can certainly define it broadly enough to include what you might call an office management operating system, which is basically what WeWork is. It's a way of taking office space and managing to make it fun and welcoming while also having many more people per square foot than offices have historically had, which is a very profitable business to get into if you can make it work. And everyone thought for a long time that WeWork could make it work before concluding that they couldn't. The idea is that if you have a, a multifamily rental building operating system that works similarly, that makes renters happy and that people want to live in those buildings, then, you know, maybe you can charge premium rates, you can charge higher rents to smaller apartments, that kind of thing. And you can possibly even do that with buildings that you don't own. Sure, I'm right? open to that. But you can apply like a tech story to any sort of old-fashioned business. And I agree. I mean, certainly WeWork was selling that. I mean, part of where it became a disaster with SoftBank was they started, I mean, as well depicted in We Crashed, they started really trying to come up with the tech story on top of the real estate story. So I'm sure, you know, well, there's a lot we don't know about flow. And so I'm sure you're right yeah. that they're going to do that. But it does seem at the core that real estate is part of it. And Andreessen, you know, has this whole American dynamism sort of thesis where they want to be back in sort of fixing America's problems. And they have more than, you know, they have more than $12 billion to invest. So I, while I'm sure eventually they will contort and find a tech story and maybe they will succeed in getting there, I do think what motivates it is that Mark Andreessen really wants to like fix America with capitalism. He has all this money. And so this is sort of him untethered, going with the founder. Nobody wants to have money, uh, investing in what he wants to fix. And I think that's the story here. To yeah, me. and he likes out-of-consensus bets. He likes being a little bit trolly. He likes the idea that, you know, no one wants to work with Adam Newman because he was so bad the first time around. So maybe, like, he can be the contrarian who works with Adam Newman and makes money the second time around. I think you, Eric, were the one who pointed out that turnabout is fair play, that he was the guy who funded Parker Conrad at Zenefits, which turns out to be a disaster. <laughs> and then Parker Conrad's second company, which was not funded by Anderson Horowitz, has done extremely well. 
Right. I mean, we've been in, so yeah, exactly right. And, you know, Andreessen funded Zenefits, which was founded by Parker Conrad. Then they basically forced him out, said there are all these ethical problems. And then Parker turns around, builds Rippling, Sequoia, Founders Fund, Kleiner Perkins, Invest. Now Rippling is worth far more than Zenefits ever was. And it's like, oh man, Andreessen shouldn't have, dist- they're supposed to be founder friendly. And the one founder that they burnt the relationship with has now built this really promising company. So yeah, I agree. I mean, then we get an all, I think, you know, it's all gradations of who did what wrong and how much you can't just compare every story. Right. I think Parker Conrad's sins, which we could spend episodes and episodes debating to me were relatively small relative to Adam Newman's. It was plausible to believe that Parker Conrad, you know, could learn from those lessons in a way that I think Adam Newman, uh, Will his personality ever change? I've also seen some theories that, you know, part of the impetus for the investment is that it's just a way for them to deploy a lot of capital in in one go and they maybe have too much money. What do you think about that? This is a fantastic question because there are two competing narratives out there. One is that VC companies, including Anderson Horowitz, have a bunch of dry powder. They raise these big funds. They need to spend them. They're not finding it very easy to find places to spend that money. And then the other one is that they've all become incredibly tight-fisted. They don't want to spend anything on anyone. Valuations have plunged. And trying to get money out of a VC is like trying to get blood out of a stone. So which one is it? Well, I think those these are actually interconnected stories. Definitely, it's been a slow summer. You know, top VCs text me that they're going on vacation for months. Like, there's no hiding that people are being really slow on doing deals. And so I think part of what Andreessen is saying, this sort of subtext for insiders here, is that we're willing to make a big bet right now. We think things are going to be good, you know, without having to say that, because if they're wrong, they won't be embarrassed. It's like we were just doing a deal. But I think the subtext of this is we're still gung-ho about doing crazy, bold things. And so we think things are going to be better. And of course, we're in this super weird period of the market where it seemed like the world was ending. And now NASDAQ is up, what, I didn't 15% something, you know, over the last month. So we've been in this rebound where it's giving all the bulls hope that they can just go back to their shtick of just being raw, raw tech. And so I think this deal fits into that where Andreessen can make a really bullish bet without declaring a macro thesis and then sort of watch and see how everything plays out. Plus, of course, there's a crypto angle. Andreessen loves crypto angles. And Adam Newman already has this thing called Flow Carbon, which is something, something carbon credit, something blockchain. It looks like <laughs> Flow is going to have something blockchain-y associated with it as well. So there's a bunch of buzz there. And you can just kind of, you can see the investment thesis just on the basis of, well, if it's real estate, then how much can it really crash? I want to sort of segue a little bit and talk a little bit about the rental multifamily real estate world because Mark Andreessen is actually just simply incorrect, factually incorrect about a bunch of things that he was writing in that blog post. He said that the number of households in America is rising faster than the number of housing units in America. And that's not true. The number of households in America you know, fell off a cliff in 2020 with the pandemic and you know immigration going to zero and that kind of stuff, but it's still running very low. Total households have been increasing at like less than a million a year for a while now. Meanwhile, 
housing construction activity has really sped up over the past few years, well over a million. You know, we're running housing starts at like 1.7 million, something like that on an annualized basis. So we are closing the housing gap. Like there isn't enough housing to go around. There is more demand than supply, but we are building quite impressive amounts of housing right now. So if his thesis is that we're not building enough, like maybe we're not building fast enough to close that gap fast enough but like we are closing it we are building and more to the point he has this incredibly i don't know how to even put it just supercilious attitude towards renters in general he's like you don't have any feeling of community you don't like your neighbors you don't hang out with your neighbors you have no soul you don't care you know about making the place you live a better place and it's deadening and it will kill the life force of America and we need homeowners to do that. He's just telegraphing publicly that he doesn't rent. He hasn't rent, rented in a long time, possibly ever. He doesn't know anyone that rents. And, and these are observations made from, you know, his very posh giant house. Right. Someone who what started having a fortune in the real estate boom and married to a family that is a major landowner in California. So Mark Andreessen is wealthy every direction you can imagine. And he didn't he just buy like the most expensive house in America? The big house in LA? I forget how much. I think he spent like $250 million on some house in Malibu or some somewhere down there in Southern California. He's putting together a massive like personal real estate portfolio to sort of counterbalance the massive real estate portfolio that he married into. I don't know. He, he's really <laughs> long real estate these days. That's for damn sure. Well, he's but also he, famously... But he also wrote... Yeah, he's also famously a NIMBY, right? Yes, which if, if I were being really cynical, I might suggest that this investment is a way to get people who need rentals out of his backyard. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's exactly. He wants to build in like Nashville and Miami, but not in Atherton, where he's like writing letters to the local council saying... We can't have multifamily zoning in Atherton because that will massively reduce our property values. And you're like, oh my God. It's always amazing Mark Andreessen's capacity to avoid direct engagement with the hypocrisy. Like that he can put out this whole blog post <laughs> right after the NIMBY letter came out, was in almost every media outlet, and yet is still able to have, you know, the New York Times write about flow, have this huge blog post, define the conversation. And never face a question about the Atherton thing. He's just not even said anything about it. It's he's just this guy who has, you know, one of the most accessible Twitter accounts in the world. It's just amazing how much he's willing to just, I don't know, thumb his nose at the public, not engage with obvious big questions about him. You know, I, I find it infuriating. He used to be much more willing to engage. I don't know, does he block you on Twitter? He blocks me. He blocks me. <laughs> no, he actually unblocked me. <laughs> he unblocked you. Well, wow. now I work on Substack, so maybe I don't. I could. I have no idea. I oh, is he invested lot, in stuff in Substack? Oh my god, Andreessen Horowitz is the biggest investor in Substack. Yeah, there you go. You see that? Maybe I should like just start writing things on my Substack. <laughs> I'm not sure I want him to unblock me. To be honest, it's quite nice to be blocked by Andrew. By I don't Mark even know Andreessen. why There's he blocked a bunch me. Of I think it's, you know. Oh, he went on this massive blocking spree where he blocked any journalist who said anything rude about Elizabeth Holmes. 
but it went beyond that. I think he, I mean, it ended up being a great way for him to get attention. He just blocked so many people that people had never heard of him would then discover him and find he'd already blocked them. So I, I think it was like a savvy way to like actually be on more people's minds just because what makes people care about you more than say, no, I won't be your friend. You know, it's like, I didn't even know you existed. Marketplace of ideas indeed. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so the thesis he has is that if you rent, you don't feel invested in your community is very importantly false. And I want to just kind of spend a minute. It's also insulting, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's also basically racist, right? Because the neighborhoods in America that are dominated by renters are also neighborhoods that are dominated by people of color, right? So you can go to I don't know, Little Haiti in Miami, or you can go to Harlem in New York. If you try and think of like, where are the neighborhoods where most people rent? They're not white neighborhoods. And yet there, there are very strong communities in those neighborhoods. They can last for generations. They can last for decades. And me, be, you know, putting on my I'm a German hat for a minute, you know, Germany is famous for having incredibly strong communities where everyone rents and it's perfectly normal and fine and there aren't even necessarily sort of greedy private sector landlords who are trying to maximize rental income from those houses it's just like communities where people live the federal government in germany has it gives local governments money according to how many people they have in their region. So the local governments, if they want to maximize the amount of money they're getting from the federal government, have every incentive to build lots of housing and to bring lots of people into the town. Unlike in America, where you get, you know, local funding of, say, schools, and all of the local parents are like, we can't have poor people coming in because they're going to not pay lots of taxes and we're going to get bigger class sizes and that kind of thing. Like, the problems with renting in america and the reason why america has become like weirdly ghettoized where all of the people in rich neighborhoods own their homes and all of the people in poor neighborhoods rent their homes is peculiarly american and it's not something that you can fix by throwing a few hundred million dollars at adam newman right it's based in zoning politics it's based in education funding and frankly it's based in just like this american dream of wanting to own your own home, which is not really a dream in somewhere like Germany or even Japan. Yeah, it's also been a little bit cyclical in terms of the extent to which the government pushes homeownership. That was a big deal during the Clinton administration. There was a concerted effort to create policies that would encourage homeownership. And that's at least a little bit of what precipitated the 08 credit crisis. And we had mortgage interest tax deductions, which are, you know, a federal way of encouraging home ownership. We had the subsidized 30-year fixed rate mortgage from Fannie and Freddie, which is another way of encouraging home ownership. So yeah, the government really puts its thumb on the scale in terms of wanting more home ownership. And, you know, politicians will, on both sides of the aisle, will say that home ownership is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread and we need more of it and for that reason no one really spends a huge amount of effort on rental housing although i will give the biden administration credit for this one back in may they released this big sort of five-year plan trying to improve 
the amount of affordable rental housing in America will see. But just to channel Mark Andreessen here for a second, as much as that pains me, I mean, there is a reality that there is a sort of political media class that is free to pursue reforms to all these housing policies that you're, you're talking about. Mark Andreessen has what? his $12 billion or whatever to invest. If he invested $350 million of it in some software company, no one would blink an eye. That's sort of his job. If instead he redirects that money and actually says, you know what? Nobody using the sort of policy levers that should have much greater impact than mine are doing anything effective. Why don't I use this money to try and run an experiment, have a startup, see if we can do something. People all of a sudden say, no, you have to, you have to solve this with policy. Like this in no way detracts from the ability of people to try and address these problems with policy. And it's his view that the government just fails to do this stuff. Well, you know it, why the government is what, failing what is, to do it because every time they try and fix it, they run into NIMBYs like <laughs> Mark Andreessen who prevent them from doing it. On a small town level, I certainly agree. And I wouldn't agree with everything I just said, but I just feel like I have to have to give his argument here a voice. You know, we, we had Connor Doherty on a while back, and it is deeply understood that the big obstacles to you know building more rental housing in America are local; they're not federal, right? Yeah. And but that's why California is trying to supersede all those local issues, right. and that's an interesting thing that's happening. We can, but hope. Let's move on to the VC landscape more generally, because this is what you cover and put aside Anderson Horowitz for a minute and that kind of weird bets on crypto and whatnot, but like the big names, the Sequoias, the Tigers, the Kleiners, how are they doing? What has happened over the past few months? Has, have they like looked into the existential void and said, Oh shit, you know, like SoftBank just lost $23 billion in a single quarter. Are they like, everything looks terrible or are they relatively sanguine? Yeah. I mean, Sequoia had, you know, is famous for their RIP good times post. Then during the pandemic, they put out a warning saying this is going to be bad. And then the pandemic actually turned out to be great for tech stocks. And then again, they put out a piece saying, okay, now this is serious. They talked to all their founders. You know, it's a complicated story with lots of different firms competing. I think definitely people pulled back on deals. I mean, the late stage rounds were being really done by the Tiger Globals, Co2s, D1, Altimeter, these big crossover hedge funds. So if you know those deals really slow down and then it slowly trickles down the market, you know, seed rounds keep going, but but people are apprehensive about doing a, a middle stage round when they know there might not be money from these crossover funds because these crossover funds can just look at the public markets and say it's a much better deal to invest in, you know, I don't know confluent on the public markets or what, you know, any software company, Asana, than to bet on a Databricks or some huge late stage company. So that's the challenge. And then that flows backward down the market. And then I think sort of complicating things further in the bull times, all these venture firms had said, you know, we're so smart. We're great investors. We best on the best companies. We should actually hold on to those companies when they go public. And so all of a sudden you saw Sequoia becoming a huge public investor. And so they're still holding on to DoorDash and Unity as the stock market is crumbling, missing out on, you know, 8 billion plus of potential returns if they just sold, you know, like a year after those companies gone public. So 
but now we're in the rebound. So it is, it is, is this the sort of head fake on the way down, down, down to a dot-com boom style thing? Or should firms, you know, go back to being bullish and deploying capital? And I think if things keep rebounding, everybody's saying September deals have got to start going, going stronger. So I love this idea that the VC's investment thesis is basically we will invest early money into companies and then effectively sell them or sell a very large stake in them to hedge funds with a lot more money. And then the hedge fund investment thesis is we will buy huge stakes in companies and then sell them or sell a very large stake in them to public market investors who seem to be, you know, as a you know a year ago, just desperate to buy anything. But now those self-same hedge funds are saying, it literally makes no sense to do that because we can just go into the public markets, buy up all of those stocks that IPO'd last year at pennies on the dollar totally. where they IPO'd. And that's got to be, you know, we get to have a second bite at the cherry. We get to like buy into them, IPO them, make a profit, and then wait for those stocks to fall and then buy them again and hope they go up. There's no need to play in the private market. In a rational market, you know, the private markets, you should get a better deal because you can't, they're illiquid, you know, you can't sell out. But what happened was that better deal was awesome. You know, you get to be in technology companies early. It's a cabal of only like a few powerful people. So if you're a great public market investor, you're like, well, I'm connected. I can do that on the private markets. And so then in 2021, we got to this crazy point where you were paying a premium to invest in private companies, which made no sense. And that's where you get this sort of flip to, oh, wait, we've way overvalued private companies. And all the people who moved into private probably want to go back to public, like you said. Is that bad for the VC ecosystem broadly? Or is this just a very cyclical ecosystem? And sometimes it has bad times, and sometimes it has good times. And anyone who runs a VC fund over more than one cycle is just has seen this movie a million times and they're like, you know, this is what we invest through. Well, you know, I think there are all these new funds that are going to need to raise more money. And if LP limited partners, the investors in venture funds are less inclined to do that, it could be hard for the new ones. Certainly, I, you know, the Sequoias, the Andreessen's seem pretty safe. I mean, on that side, these funds have all raised a ton more money. So it could be that they're deploying a lot of capital at the market peak, right? I mean, the old sort of wisdom of venture and this is sort of what the benchmarks of the world did is you just keep the same fund size, you deploy the same amount every year. Some years are great years. You don't really know what the great years are, so you deploy the same amount. Instead, VCs saw, oh my God, if Tiger has all this money, we should have way more money. They raise a bunch of money and all of a sudden they're deploying more. So their deployments aren't even year to year and they might very well have deployed a ton of money into this great bull market You know, when prices then come down. You've written a little bit about VCs using debt to deploy money faster and then raising equity rounds. How is that affecting all of this? <laughs> yeah, we're always, I mean, journalists, myself included, we're always looking for the, you know, sort of, I don't know, structural problems. Definitely there are these hedge funds that, you know, got like JP Morgan and others, Tiger in particular, to give them loans. And then they would start investing the funds before they raise them. I mean, so far... We, we haven't seen a problem, you know, but yeah, definitely that's the type of behavior that could, you know, get you in a tough situation if the money doesn't come in or something like that, or, you know, your portfolio goes down and, 
you know, your the loans are guaranteed against the portfolio, but nothing has sort of reached the public eye where the debt exposure has caused some sort of a systematic problem. And I, I think it's more about the crossover funds than than traditional venture. That's sort of a boring answer. It's like the world isn't collapsing yet, but it is definitely yeah, no, the type I, of thing no, you watch out like, for. Yeah, if, if you know, if you know those checks are coming yeah, in. For, for me, it's I'm just looking at it going, that looks like a stick of dynamite. It's, could anything happen? Yeah, there? I'm kind of with Eric on this one. Like, it's very easy for journalists to be like, "Oh my god, look at all of this debt. What could possibly well, go I'm on?" Well, I'm one of you know, up. I worry about it, and like most of the time, it doesn't. Right, right. Most of the time, it does. The people yeah. who underwrite this debt know exactly what they're doing. They're smart people. Well, I mean, we're talking about J.P. Morgan, the bank that went all in on WeWork to bring it full circle. So know what they're doing. I don't know. They know to ride like a great, exciting uh, story and hope that it all works out. And that if it doesn't, people were like, oh, that was a mania that we were all tied up in. So so did J.P. Morgan invest in WeWork or did they just try and IPO it? I think they had a stake in it. And then, I mean, Jamie Dimon was super close to Adam Newman. They were involved, I think, in some of the loans. I mean, he was like one of the key sort of adults in the room who was sort of giving his, giving credence to Adam Newman along the way up. And then, yeah, they were, I think, the bank on the IPO trying to get it out. So last question about private markets and VC and that kind of thing. For a while now, for a good decade, there's been this cult of the founder that you know, the the main thing you need in order to have a successful company is to make a big bet on the right founder. And we've seen Adam Newman being like the most prominent sort of founder to come a cropper, but there have been quite a few. There's been a bunch of exits of prominent founders. There's Aaron Griffith just had a big piece in the New York Times about how all of the founders, like now they've reached the tough times. They're like, you know, piecing out and going off to spend time with their billions. Do you see uh, this is a transitional point to, you know, Adam Newman notwithstanding a less founder-centric ecosystem, or is that pretty much baked in? I think founders are still and will always be core to the venture model. But we got, I mean, Tiger was so dominant in 2021, so I keep bringing them up. But basically, we got to the point where people with huge pools of money were saying, I have so much money to deploy, I won't even bother you. I'll give you this money and I won't even tell you what to do. I don't even need a board seat. So founder control had gotten so extreme in the Valley that the old guard venture firms had to play that game. They couldn't even pretend like they were going to meddle in your business, which meant you know that they were just like totally deferential to the founder. Now, when money's more scarce, VCs have more leverage, definitely... You know, if you really need to raise around and it's hard to do it, there might be an opportunity for your board to say, listen, if you step aside, this company can raise money. That's the only way you're going to make any money off of this. So, so when the VCs have more leverage, the founders have less leverage, and it's definitely sort of a good corrective, a moment in time for people to be able to say, hey, founder, we told you you were a genius, but actually it looks like you're delusional. You're going to run to this company in the ground. We only have five months left of cash. If you don't let us put a professional in here, we're not going to let you get any more money and then you're screwed. So it's all about the balance of power. But I think, you know, early stage companies, founders will always be core to that. And VCs want to build a reputation for being, quote, founder friendly, which makes them very sort of cautious about having these big fights with founders. But they still happen. And especially when things are looking bleaker. And I want to talk a little bit about the public markets because it does seem that the 
crazy returns and the manias and the excitement that people used to have about Uber and WeWork and all of these unicorns has now become a cult around you know Ryan Cohen, who is like um, has become like this public company investor. He founded Chewy as a yeah. I, I never company. even heard of the guy until the whole GameStop thing. And then he buys into GameStop, turns GameStop into this phenomenon. Whether he is the responsible party for that, I don't know. But then he starts buying into Bed Bath and Beyond, and Bed Bath and Beyond goes through the roof. And there's this literally twenty year old kid who, and this is my favorite part of the whole story, had a quick whip around among his friends and family. And they managed to, you know, cobble together a $25 million. As which we he just, all do one day. Which you he know, just, just yodeled. Uh, <laughs> hey, pass around the hat. Did you have $25 million for me to blow on meme stocks? Yeah, he's like, Auntie Betty, do you think you could lend, you know, give me some money to invest? And she's like, sure, here's $25 million. He puts the $20 million into Bed Bath & Beyond. And then he's like, oh shit, I'm going to college in the fall. <laughs> I don't really have time to look after this investment in Bed Bath & Beyond, so I, just, I guess I'll just sell it. And he makes a $110 million profit and then just goes off to college and pieces out. And then Ryan Cohen, who's also in Bed Bath & Beyond for reasons that no one can understand, decides that, well, if this 20-year-old isn't in there, then he's not going to be in there either. He sells. <laughs> now it's like the share price has gone way back down again, that kind of crazy, weird, personality-driven investment thesis, fast money, like, the public markets now just seem to be where all of the crazy is. The markets only have to be rational in the long term. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's wild. Uh, you know, Reddit and social media's ability to coalesce a bunch of crazy people to try and create their own pump and dumps, you know, has created this meme stock period. And I don't know... I mean, it's funny. I was obsessed with Kodak for a while. You know, the one where Trump, the Trump yep. world was sort of complicit in creating a meme stuff. I mean, it's just, I don't know what to say besides, yeah, it's crazy, but people gamble. It feels like large scale gambling. You see, my thesis was, and I think a bunch of people shared this thesis, that there was this period, especially in early 2021, when you had you know, the spring of the memes, meme stock. So it was GameStop, it was AMC, it was BlackBerry. There was a whole bunch of them that everyone started like YOLOing into. And then that kind of fever abated. We had people going out and actually getting lives again because they weren't stuck at home anymore because they were all vaccinated. And then the market like cooled off. The NASDAQ came down quite a lot. And it felt like that was this period that was over but now it is happening with bed bath and beyond and you're like maybe it's not over yeah i i feel like the energy is there i mean the pandemic with you know smart stimulus payments to everybody did give some people excess cash to as you said yolo and so that that probably fueled it some you but don't now need your 1400 dollars <laughs> stimmy when you can get 20 million dollars from your uncle fred right right <laughs> I loved all the media framing on that story where the headlines were just random 20-year-old makes $110 million. And then you read four paragraphs down. It's like, I also, you know, started with $25 million and had been investing with the professional investor before. Those are relevant facts, I think. Yes. And they need to pair the story with the person who lost all their money. I, 
I, I yeah. feel like it's what's the whole thing in investing? You know, you gave like a hundred monkeys money to just like bet on the market. You know, you slowly winnow them down, and then there's some winner at the end, and everybody can celebrate that person and be like, "What a genius!" You know, and that's sort of how the media works. It's like, okay, this is the person who made a ton of money by making random, insane bets. But it's like, yeah, we have no no sense. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are losing money now. I don't know what the significance of a story like that is. I would love to read the story of the 20-year-old who raised $20 million <laughs> from his family and then just lost it all. He put it all into crypto. Yeah, exactly. And then it went and when it and then it went to zero and they were like, oh well, never mind. It was only well, you, $20 million. You do see on some of those crypto bankruptcy filings, people are like, I told my grandmother to put all her money in crypto and now she's gonna lose it all. So there are definitely families all around America, tragically, where yeah, there was the my tech savvy nephew told me blah blah blah, you know, and that is a, a reality of the economy that we're in. Let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, did you bring a number? I did. My number is $2,800, and that's the average cost savings of being able to, if you need them, buy your hearing aids on the over-the-counter market now instead of having to get a prescription for them. The FDA declared on Tuesday that you no longer have to go see an audiologist to get a hearing aid, and also that they can be sold over-the-counter and for me, you know, I think the story is really interesting. There's one of the few things where you see bipartisan support for it. But I also think about what else this is applicable to. Like, it, it irritates me that I have to get a new vision prescription every now and then, even though I know that my vision hasn't changed, but I have to do it to get new contacts. Huh, that's interesting because I, I, I don't wear contacts. I just wear glasses and no one ever asks me for a new prescription for it when I get a new pair of glasses. Yeah, I have to have one, so I, I don't know. Maybe it's a contacts thing. Yeah, come on, FDA. Get into the contact lenses world next. If you look at, you know, I mercifully don't need a hearing aid, but the, the cost of them is astonishing, and, and health insurance often doesn't cover them. So the high end, you know, it can be, you know, 8700 bucks for a pair. The low end, maybe 1400 we will see how much it comes down, whether this is effective in bringing the price down. I think the place to look, as ever is Walmart, which was always famous for having the highest quality, lowest price hearing aids. We'll see if they manage to cut the price even further. My number, I love this one. My number is 38392. I don't know, Eric, if you've ever browsed the Mita Corporation's list, official list of common vulnerabilities and exposures. This is basically this master list of all of the exploits that you can use to hack into computers or that can damage computers. And the latest list has come out. And the exploit number 38392 is this exploit where certain old computer hard drives, which are 5400 RPM hard drives, if you play a certain sound, it resonates with the, how they spin, and they wind up spinning out of control and breaking, right? And it turns out, you're going to love this so much, it turns out that the sound that you need to play in order to break these old hard drives in old desktop computers is the music video for Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation song from 1989. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So, the Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation music video has now been officially listed as a common vulnerability in Xbox. Oh my God. Computer manufacturers had to turn off that frequency or something to solve it? or Oh, yeah. So what they did 
is they added, quote, a custom filter in the audio pipeline to detect and remove the offending frequencies right. during audio playback. So basically, there's a custom filter in all of these computers now, where if you try and play the Janet Jackson music video, they will add a bunch of noise to it so that the hard drive doesn't explode. <laughs> You're not getting the real thing anymore. Exactly. Amazing. I can just bring us full circle. I mean, $3.4 billion. That's what uh, WeWork's market cap is today. I just, it is a far cry from the company that was supposed to go public. Wait, uh, is it public? Yeah. Yeah. It went public via SPAC. Oh my God. I totally forgot that it went public yeah, via yeah, SPAC. Yeah. What's its ticker symbol? Is it still we? Oh yeah, it's we. Yeah, it's we. So it has a great ticker. <laughs> I'm sure they spent a fortune on that. <laughs> oh, they that's maybe, right. Adam Newman uh, had that party at the Standard Hotel, didn't he, when they went public? And yeah, and it's now trading at four dollars fifty four a share. Wow. Yeah. Well done, WeWork. I'm trying to remember what the peak valuation was. Yeah. Well, when Massasan like was just like buying in it, just name your right. name your number. Oh, well, you know, it's still a multi-billion dollar company. <laughs> yeah, but I, I did think it was absurd. People were like, let's give Adam his due. He built, you know, it's like, if yeah, given all that money to build a company, I hope there are many founders who could produce uh, similar results. Awesome. Well, I think that's it for us this week. Thanks, Eric, so much for coming on. This was brilliant. Yeah, thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Thank you also to Jessamyn Molly for producing from Seaplane Armada. And thank you to all of you guys for writing in Slate Money at Slate.com. We will be back next week with even more Slate Money. All right, Eric, tell me about Emil Michael. After having him on your podcast, he was notorious when he was at Uber. Like, if Travis had a bad reputation, like one of the worst things he was understood to have done was to empower and back Emil Michael, who was like the real sort of like mustache twirling villain of Uber. <laughs> so is that true? I think the question was like, you know, Emil definitely was the guy who had Travis's ear. And I was like, you know, did you push back on Travis enough or did he like having people or sort of like, and you know, I, I sort of leading him here and Emil, you know, was like, you know, was he a yes man? And Emil said, I would at least say this on a relative basis. I did more than anyone else in history of giving him feedback, whether it was investors or other leaders, whatever, because we had a relationship that allowed for it. And I cultivated that on purpose. I mean, it was just, you know, he was the guy who had Travis's ear and, you know, was sort of there for a lot, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. When he was giving Travis feedback, was the feedback like, go harder, be meaner, break more laws? Or was it like, hang on a sec, Travis, you might be going too far here? Well, I think what's satisfying about the interview is that Uber was pretty express about the fact that they're operating in legal gray areas, right? There's lots of things we didn't know that we learned over time, like gray ball, like what that meant exactly. But the idea that they were operating in cities where they were not explicitly allowed was something that Uber was pretty open about at the time. And it was funny to sort of, I mean, it was fun to go back through that. What does Emil say about that time now? Is he contrite at all for what he did? Contrite isn't the lead word that I would use, no. <laughs> um, he, I mean, he's very happy about raising all the money. He's definitely very proud about the many, many billions. I forget if I put it in the text or not. 
Oh, yeah, he bragged to me. He's like, he raised $15 billion when he was at Uber. And then, you know, trying to succeed in China, which they sold to Didi. I mean, I feel like for Slate Money, I mean, you would be interested just in that, you know, I asked him, like, does it make sense that like Uber could raise all this money? You know, we were in this low interest rate environment. You know, the economy was chasing growth. Uber was selling it. And honestly, even Emil, like the guy who raised, you know, the 15 billion was not... Like, yes, definitely. Uber deserved to raise this money. It was a very like, I don't know, there was money to money to be had. You know, we raised it well. But like, yeah, I, I don't even think he's out there saying that like that represents what a functioning economy uh, looks like. Is he out there raising VC money for his new firm that he's founded? Well, you, you can guess what he's doing. He's he's obviously uh, taking companies public via SPAC. You know, oh, he's of, he's like Shamath. The the trailing end of the SPAC phenomenon here. He just uh, there's this company D Wave, which is uh, one of the quantum computing companies. I think he just you know merged his SPAC vehicle with it uh, to take it public. I would love. I would really love to do an interview with the people who stuck with Emil Michael's SPAC, who put like millions of dollars into the SPAC and said, yeah, I really trust you to get this one right. And I'm not going to take my $10 out. I'm just going to just think that you're, you've totally nailed this choice of well, computing yeah. company. I mean, he, he, he's a complicated figure. I mean, yeah, he was an extremely successful fundraiser, business operator. But yeah, I mean, to come back to the my, my first question, is he a bad man? Like, he, he really had a reputation for being the very bad person at the top of Uber, who was making it worse and preventing it from getting better. Is that reputation justified? Is that true? I am going... I, first of all, I think people should listen to the podcast because we sort of go around in circles on a bunch of these issues. It's dead cat. But, you know, the challenge with assessing Uber, in my point of view, is that there are so many ethical sins that it's accused of. To me, the number one would be like the treatment of drivers and sort of the gaming of drivers. And I think there, like, it's so endemic to the company. And certainly he was in charge of like this leasing program that got all these drivers like hooked on Uber that they couldn't afford. So I think he's he bears a lot of responsibility for that. The second sort of bucket would be, you know, the Susan Valor HR categories. He wasn't really in charge of HR. Now he was sort of enabler of Travis and Travis created the company. So bears some responsibility. I mean, he was famous for going to a Korean escort bar where there were, you know, these sort of a tawdry sort of setting. And then Eric Holder, the former attorney general of Uber, recommended his firing because he uh, approved an expense report for this karaoke bar where there were escorts, basically. And so, I mean, but Travis was there too. But yeah, I mean, that that was definitely a... And he's apologetic for that, obviously. He thinks that was a mistake. At the end of the day, I think a lot of the assessment of Emil is whether do you believe in Uber and do you believe that Uber should have sort of pushed the law to a breaking point in order to spread around the world and beat back taxis. And I guess I'm net-net in defense of Uber fighting its way into our society. Wow. Look at you, libertarian Eric Newcomer. <laughs> no, the government should have stopped them. The government could have stopped them. Like that that would have if it was illegal, they would have lost. Anyway, mm. it's a long debate. I know you guys mm. disagree clearly. <laughs> Eric, thank you very much.